Thanks, Joe, and good morning, everybody. I was going to also big up Matt, but he's gone. But I couldn't have asked for a better example, actually, um, to illustrate um, what we're talking about this morning. This morning, we have reached the book of Job in our year of biblical literacy. Um, I have subtitled this talk and next week's uh, one as well. They're part of a double series together, um, How to Suffer. It's a happy talk we're going to have. Um, Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. It's one of the hardest to understand, but it's one of the most profound. If you've got a Bible with you or if you've got access to a Bible on your phone or some other way of doing it, you will. I recommend that you have it open. We're going to read quite a bit of it this morning. Uh, you'll be pleased to know we're not going to read the whole of the book of Job. Um, if you need a Bible, we have some over on the back there, just on that shelf. If you need to grab one, please help yourself. Um, the, this, this book is set in the land called Uz, which is actually outside of Israel, outside of most of where the Old Testament um, happens. Um, but the author, who is anonymous, is clearly a Hebrew and is clearly thoroughly immersed in the scriptures of Hebrew. And if essentially, this book um, is the story of what happens to this guy called Job. It's unfortunate that he, most people seem to refer to him as Job, but he is called Job. And at the start of the story, this guy Job is successful and happy and rich, but he undergoes a devastating set of tragedies and he basically loses everything. And it is about how he reacts to that, how his friends react to that, um, and how he looks to God in that, how he relates with God in the place of suffering and how God meets him in that place. And so the author of Job is actually a addressing a universal question about suffering, one which people have been asking and debating down the centuries for many, many, many years. Still a question that I'm sure is asked today, probably an accusation against God or Christianity that you may have heard or maybe you have even asked yourself. I mean, it goes something like this. Just trying to put it, there's a number of ways of framing it, but basically the question is how is it that we can square a God who on one hand created a universe with love how do we square that with the reality of what we, need, we read on our news apps or on the television or in our papers day after day after day? Can we still believe a God who is a God of love when there is an infant child born with a physical deformity or a mental handicap? Can we still believe that God is a God of love with child abuse going on in the world, with refugee crisis, with terrorism and war and cancer? and chronic illness. When followers of Jesus are dealing with mental illness for decades sometimes, how can we believe that God is a God of love when we have to deal with death itself? How do we fit all this together? And I'm really sorry to have to tell you that actually um, there's no straightforward answer to that question. The Bible has a go at it in some places. In Job it is discussed but the purpose of the book of Job is not specifically to try and answer that question. He does talk about it, he does touch on it and address it. But Job is the author of Job is actually trying to do something different. And so this isn't an easy book to read and digest. Some parts of it are frankly taxing, whilst other parts of it are breathtakingly inspiring. But it is in the Bible for a reason, and there's definitely something to learn here. Here's a quote from a theologian called Peter Kreeft, who says this, Job is a mystery. It's a mystery a mystery that satisfies something in us, but not our reason. The rationalist in us is repelled by Job, as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job. We'll come to that in a minute. But something deeper in us is deeply satisfied by Job and nourished. <laughs> and then I love this analogy he uses. He says, when we read Job, we're like a little child eating spinach. Open your mouth, close your eyes, and eat it. <laughs> Job is like spinach. It doesn't taste particularly sweet, 
but it puts iron in your blood. So as we look at Job, let's think of it as having a meal of spinach, okay? Why don't we pray? Father God, thank you for this book. Um, And Lord, as we wrestle with some of these ancient texts and we try and figure out why they're in the Bible and, and, and what it is that we're to learn from them, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come now, inspire us, lead us, encourage us, challenge us, make us think and meet us in this place. I'm just turning the rest of this morning. Lord, we already know you're here, but, but this is all over to you. Come and lead us, we pray. Amen. So a quick note about the style of this book. Most of it is not written as a narrative. Many of the books in the Old Testament leading up to this point have been written as historical accounts and narratives. Um, this is different to many of them. It's written in uh, short stanzas. There's vivid imagery and there's exaggerated repetition. This is a book of poetry. And it's really important that we remember that because it's in a completely different style. Okay, This is kind of telling a story, but it's telling a story perhaps a little bit like Shakespeare's Macbeth is telling a historical story. It's quite loosely based on a historical account, um, but it's beautifully, dramatically told to make a point. It's a little bit like that. And so um, you can, uh, if you go to, I think I've tweeted the link to this, and I think it's been in the e-press, but the Bible Project have an overview. Um, I wonder if anybody's managed to watch this in the last few weeks or months, just the overview of Job. Or maybe, how many of you have actually read through Job sometime in the last two or three years? Okay, a few of us. So this sheet, um, I'm not going to go into it in detail, but you can download this or you can look in the e-press for a link to it. Um, This sheet will give you an overview of the structure, but very, very briefly and essentially, um, you've got uh, chapters one and two, which is like a prologue. And then you've got this massive section of poetry in the middle, chapters three to 37, uh, which is kind of called the dialogues between Job's friends. There's this back and forth conversations and there's Job complaining at God and trying to deal with this question. And then later in, verse, in chapter 38, you get God's response where God starts to talk back and then you've got a sort of epilogue at the end. And so uh, we're gonna, we're not, you'll be pleased to know we're not going to read it through all of it, but we are going to start at chapter one and I'm going to read a fair chunk of it this morning. And so chapter one, verse one, this is the prologue and it introduces Job. And it says this, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. There's your introduction. This is Job. Ladies and gentlemen, center stage, Job. Successful, rich, famous, a man of faith, blameless, upright, a fantastic guy. But watch what happens to him. And the next bit of this, I'm going to go down to to verse 6. A preacher I've quoted a little bit in this talk, quite a bit, called John Mark Comer, talks about how this next bit, it's, it's almost like pulling back the curtain behind the universe. He called this the curtain behind the universe. And so what you read, you then see this scene. Um, I don't have it all to put up there, but I'm reading from verse six. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Now, remember, this is not meant to be read literally. It's meant to be read, get this word, literately. 
not literally, literally, okay? We're presented in this scene with an image of heaven, a bit like an ancient Near Eastern throne room. We have God on the throne as the king, the judge, uh, with all of the sort of lawyers and advisors and angels and people around him, messengers. It's a bit like a sort of medieval movie scene, I think, or a medieval drama. And then into the back of the courtroom comes this bad guy, this character who's called Satan. Um, Now, obviously, the word Satan in the Bible links to a whole bunch of um, a force of evil and all kinds of things going on. This, the character of Satan is in this story, but he's not the focus of it, okay? He's mentioned here and then basically doesn't get mentioned again. Um, the word Satan in Hebrew doesn't mean, it's not a name. It's not the name of somebody, it's a description. It means the accuser. It's actually better translated as the Satan, the Satan or the accuser. And so don't read too much into this. Don't think of this Satan as the devil with medieval horns and a little tail. Don't think of it like that. Think of him a little bit like in this story as the leader of the rebel army, okay? He's coming to challenge the authority of God. And so he comes in and there's a sort of disturbance in the court and, you know, everyone's a little bit disgruntled. You know, what's he here for? What does he want? And this heavenly throne room scene is immediately interrupted and and Satan, this evil villain, and God get into a dialogue. And God says, where did you get, where did you spring from? Where have you come from? And Satan says, I've been roaming around the earth going to and fro, which is basically a way of saying it's none of your business. I do what I want. I'm not under your authority. Who, Who are you to tell me what to do? And anyway, the Lord says to Satan, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Have you thought about him? Look at him. Look at him, God is saying. Look at this guy. There's no one like him. He fears God and he shuns evil. He's a wonderful man. And Satan turns this back on God and it's sort of like, does, does, this is verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? He says, haven't you, and he starts to put an accusation back at God. He says, haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed this man. You've blessed the work of his hands. You've blessed him so that his flocks and his herds are spread. But now, verse 11, Satan says, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And surely he will curse you to your face. There are two accusations that Satan is making here. Two accusations. One, he's saying that Job, he doesn't love you for who you are. He doesn't love you because you're God. He loves you because of everything you've given him. He's saying you've blessed him with all this stuff. It's obvious. He loves you because he's rich. You've made him famous. You don't curse him. You bless him. He doesn't love you just for you. How many of you parents have ever heard that accusation? I don't know. Anyway, sometimes I think about that as a parent. Um, But then there's a second, even deeper accusation that Job makes, not, that, that Satan makes, not about Job, but about God himself. He says, this is the accuser, by the way, he says, isn't, he says, you, you God, you're, actually, what, this, what he's really saying is you're like a manipulative, corrupt, control freak. God, you're like one of those politicians who just kind of give out stuff to make people vote for them. You bless people, you say, hey, love me and I'll bless you. Don't love me, don't worship me and I'll curse you. It's like Satan is really directly challenging the nature and the character of God. It's like he's betting against God. It's a huge challenge. He says, I bet you couldn't, I bet you this wouldn't last. He says, take away Job's life of blessing. There is no way that he will actually love you. What a challenge. And how does God respond to it? Well, incredibly, verse 12, God takes the bet on. 
All right then. All right. Very well, he says, verse 12. My money's on Job, by the way, not on you, Satan. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And this is like deep stuff, isn't it? It's big stuff. And notice too in verse 11 that when Satan first makes this accusation, who does he want to do the striking down of Job? Who who does he want to do it? He wants God to do it. He says, you do it. You strike him down and I bet you he won't bless you. God's response is, no, I don't do that. I don't do that. You want to ruin his life? That'll have to be up to you. So God doesn't do the striking down. God does lift his hand of protection off Job's life. It does seem that way. And you might be thinking, what? How do I square that? And that's a really good point. It's a really good question. And if I'm honest, and I'm sorry to spoil the ending for you, but this book doesn't really answer the question of why. But we never really find out. There are other places in the Bible that we'll look, and we're going to dig in a little bit more next week. Um, But there's no bulletproof, conclusive answer about why that happens, because this story is actually trying to do something else. So I'm going to go pretty fast through this and try and get an overview of the whole story and then dig into a few parts next week. Then Satan went from the presence of the Lord, chapter, um, verse 13. And one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 16, and while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 17, and while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels and made off with them, and they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And then in verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. I mean, it's so tragic. You do wonder if it's comical. It's so tragic. Tragedy strikes. And because this is a poem, we have no idea whether there is history behind this or not. We have no idea whether this is a true story or whether it's based on a true story or anything. But because it's so hyper-stylized, it's kind of like the worst case scenario, you know? The servants come one after the next, after the next, after the next. All the sons die, all the daughters die, all the cattle goes, all the wealth is gone. Everything is destroyed. In four or five verses, Job's life is destroyed from top to bottom. All that he's left with, if you read into chapter 2, is his wife. And honestly, she is less than helpful. In fact... She is horrible. She has one line in the whole story, and it's this, curse God and die, Job. (laughs) You can imagine, can't you? Satan's coming down. He's striking the cattle. He's striking the property. He's doing all that. He gets to the wife. No, no, you can keep her, okay? (laughs) She's, She's bad enough, okay? And verse 20, it says, at this point, God, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, which is how to express grief in the ancient Near East. And he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And isn't that incredible? And this line in 121 is probably, probably the most iconic line in Job, if not the most iconic line in the Old Testament. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken a different translation, blessed 
be the name of the Lord. And it's heard on a regular basis at times of tragedy and loss. It sounds so good and it sounds so godly and it sounds so right. And it's amazing that Job could say that in the middle of a really difficult situation. You know, you've just heard Matt trying to explain how to, how to even just get over the fact that his mum died this year. You know, and she, she, is, she's, she was a believer, she's in a better place. But that's blooming hard. And it seems that, you know, it, this, this line here seems to acknowledge that nothing we have is really ours, it's all God's, and that's kind of true. And it demonstrates an incredible response from Job, which is to worship in the midst of tragedy. But I'm just going to put it out there, I'm not sure that this is theologically right. How did he say that? It's in the Bible. You see, Job is certainly well-meaning, and he's certainly speaking within the scope of his understanding, so it's not his fault, but the theology is not right here. And I think it's there for a reason. That's what Job, this story is trying to tell us because we know what Job doesn't because we know what's in the prologue of this story with that curtain drawn back, but he doesn't. We know that God did not do this to Job. He didn't take away Job's family. Yes, he allowed it to happen. No, we don't know why. Is there a clear explanation? No. But one thing I'm absolutely certain of is the Lord did not take Job's family away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away is not accurate theology. At the very least, it's questionable. And so if I start using that in my life, I'm also guilty of poor theology, of thinking wrongly about God. Now, you can burn me for heresy later if you like. Um, Not only have I criticised the Bible, I'm now going to criticise Matt Redman. Okay? I love... I love Matt Redman. He wrote a fantastic song called Blessed Be Your Name. It's an incredible song. It's written from personal experience of having a very hard life growing up and some difficult times in parenting as well. Okay, It's written drawing on the Psalms of Lament and on biblical truth. It was written in the months after 9-11. And Matt said this, we were looking for songs to sing that would help the people of God respond to the work of God in every season of the soul. It's so important to look to God in every circumstance. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful and when I'm found in the desert places. And the second verse, it's not up there, goes on to say, when a road marked with suffering, when there's pain in the offering. I have a friend called Catherine Gantler. And if you've been here a few years, you may have heard her. She came and spoke here once because we did theology together and she had quite a tricky journey of trying to conceive and have a child and there were miscarriages and all sorts of stuff. And then she did have a child, um, or she did, she did conceive, and um, everything was absolutely fine, absolutely normal. And then literally the day before the child, Libby, this little girl, was due to be born, she died. And it was absolute heartbreak. Tragedy, disaster. You can't even go there and think about it. And um, Catherine asked me to go and play some music at the funeral, and she asked us to sing this song, which is fine. I've got no problem with that. Um, and there's a section in this song where he echoes the words just the the end section of the song where he echoes the words of Job. You may know it. You give and take away, you give and take away. And and Catherine said, I want you to do that because, you know, I'm okay with this. And then she came back to me and said, actually, we've thought more about this and I don't want you to sing that section of the song. And the reason that I don't want you to sing the section of the song is that I don't want my friends who are not believers to think that I think that God took my baby away. Okay? Because that's not the truth. And Matt Redman, bless him, he did say, I've heard him interviewed, and he said, he said I did write that, that section and put it at the end so that people could miss it out if they wanted to. Now, being an occasional songwriter and wanting to not just complain but come with solutions, I have tried to write an alternative. 
I've actually got two suggestions. This one's from, this one isn't mine. This one's from Alan Scott. He just said it's this, you give and give and give. You give and give and give. You give and give and give. But that doesn't necessarily deal with the mystery. I think what's probably a more pastorally helpful way to sing this song, and this is my version, is you give, but it's taken away. You might have allowed this to happen. It's a mystery, but that's okay. You are still God and you are with us in every season. But it doesn't scan. It doesn't scan, so I I think I've probably missed the boat. But, you know, um, for me, it better says what's theologically true. And we know from this prologue that it wasn't God who took Job's family away. But Job doesn't know that. He is oblivious to the fact. He thinks God killed my kids God destroyed my life. All of this was God. And yet his next response was still, may the name of the Lord be praised. And if you've read that story, this story, you'll know that this kind of response from Job actually doesn't last. And so if you jump down to verse two, we'll we'll skip over Job's crazy wife for now. Um, This is a painting of Job and his friends. Because then what happens is Job's friends come. And verse, this is chapter two and verse 11. I'm just going to read for a minute. When Job's three, excuse me, three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard all about the troubles that had come on him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. And they began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And my first thought about that is, well, that's how to be a friend, isn't it? Don't try and say anything when you've got nothing to say. But as it goes on, the three friends in this story represent the best of ancient Near, ancient Near Eastern thought, on the, the best that the world had to offer on why. Why has this happened? They're incredibly well-meaning, but they are also limited by Job. Because, sorry, because like Job, they have the same poor theological standpoint. They are coming from the point of view where they believe that God did this to Job. And between them, between Job and his friends, they spend the next 34 chapters trying to figure out why. Chapter 3 through to chapter 37 is a debate. It's an argument back and forth between Job and his friends about the problem of evil and why this has happened. I can't go into it in detail, but what I want to do is just summarise the view from each side. You see, while Job and his friends both wrongly believed that God had destroyed Job's life here, Job and his friends came to two very different conclusions about why that was and about what they should do about it. The friend's view is summed up in, verse, in chapter 4, uh, verse 7 to 9. Okay, this is just one example. But here, here it says, Consider now, this is Job's friends talking, who being innocent has ever perished? Where, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap in it. And at the breath of God, they perish. And at the blast of his anger, they are no more. So in other words, the the viewpoint of the friends is you reap what you sow. God will take care of the people that love him and worship him. And Job's friends essentially argue here and throughout this book, a formula of cause and effect. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. It's based on this idea of justice, that God is just and therefore the world that we live in is also just. And that is a view that you can still hear around and about today. There are some churches that preach what we might call a prosperity gospel. 
that say, if you bless God, he will bless you. There are hip hoppers and rappers that have these kind of Christian roots. Kanye West said, I've been talking to God for so long that if you look in my life, I guess he's talking back. He's referring to the amazing riches and wealth and opportunities he's had. There's a a well-known rapper in the States called Chance the Rapper who who, who wrapped this thing called, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. It's bobbins, but it's a formula, okay? I say it's bobbins. It's different, isn't it? It's difficult. There's a formula here which these friends believe, and the formula is if you bless God, he will bless you, and if you have been cursed, it must be because you did something wrong. You must reap what you sow. And is that a biblical principle? Well, kind of. There is, a, there is a principle in the Bible, Galatians 6, that says you reap what you sow, but it's not entirely right, and it's, not, it's much more nuanced than what Job's friends are saying here. So if you look at this verse, verse 7, consider now who being, the innocent, who being innocent has ever perished. The answer to that is loads of people. I mean, just where do you want to start? The kids killed in a high school shooting? Every baby ever aborted? Where, where do you want to go with that? Who being innocent has ever perished? You know, were the upright ever destroyed? What about Jesus? And every apostle and every martyr for their faith down in history. I mean, this formula is not completely wrong, but it's both definitely not all right either. Job's friend's view is way too simplistic. Yes, God is just, but the world we live in, at least right now, is not just. And the world doesn't function on this formula. God doesn't work this way. We can't manipulate or control things to our own advantage. That's just not how it works. But that's Job's friend's view. So what about Job himself? His first response, as we've already said, is pretty amazing. The Lord gave and the Lord take away, took away. He starts off in a really good place. But do you know what? A while, after a while, he starts to cave in. And he starts to despair and he starts to doubt. He doesn't doubt the existence of God, but he certainly doubts the character of God. I wonder if this has happened to you or to people that you know and love. Maybe it's happening right now. You see, often for those of us who have followed Jesus, a tragedy strikes. We're in the death of maybe a loved one and uh, people are amazing around us and the emotions are all over the place. And, um, (coughs) you know, we find ourselves choosing, I trust God, I know that God's at work through this. But sometimes when everyone goes back to life and family goes back to normal and weeks go by and months go by, we, everyone else has moved on and we're still in the pit of despair. We're still in the middle of hell on earth, grief and trauma and doubt. And we start to get angry with God. And if that's where you are or well, that's where you've been at, this is not a judgment on anybody. This is just human. This is just what life is like. Job is just like the rest of us here, except he's a bit more poetic in this book. So at the end of chapter one, he says, praise the name of the Lord. And by the end of the book, he's literally shouting at God. Chapter nine and verse 21, jump over to that. I've just got a few little um, examples to share with you. Although I am blameless, Job says, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. He's in the midst of depression. He said, it is all the same. And that is why I say he, meaning God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Is that true? Not really. It's not really true, but that's what Job's saying. When a scourge brings sudden death. Sorry, is that true? That's not the Bible. That's my notes. Forgive me. <laughs> copying, and, copying and pasting went a bit awry there. When a, this, this bit's the Bible. When a scourge brings sudden death. 
Anyway, moving on. When a scourge brings sudden death, Job says, he, that's God, mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, God blindfolds its judges. If it's not him, then who is it? And he starts to list tragedy after tragedy. He starts to list wars and invasion and disease and plague. And in Job's mind, all of that is down to God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And therefore, Job is following his theology to its logical conclusions. God must either be amoral or immoral. He's either without morals or he's choosing poor moral things. If God is a judge, Job is saying he's like a blind, corrupt, unjust judge. That's what Job is saying. You look over to chapter 10, verse 15. Job says, if I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I can't lift my head for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. He's in a dark place and he's chucking out the accusations against God. He says, if, you hold, if I hold my head high, you, God, stalk me like a lion and, against, and again display your awesome power against me. So the lie here that Job is believing is that Job actually thinks the, the image he's using is you're like a lion playing with its prey, just starting to mess with it before you eat it alive. That's what you are to me, God. That's what Job is saying here. Now, question for us. Number one, is that true? No. Is that what God is like? No. Are we supposed to believe from this that that's what God is like? No, we're not supposed to read this in here in Job and go, oh, that's what God is like. No, that's not it. If you know your Bible well, you'll know that in the wider library of the Bible, who is the character who's referred to like a roaming lion? It's Satan in 1 Peter 5. So the, Job has got himself into such a dark place that his response to this tragedy has ended up thinking that God is Satan or Satan, you know, Satan is God. He is, he is really messed up. He says, you're like a lion. You're tearing my life apart, God. You are cruel. Okay, this is what I'm thinking. He's in a really hard place. And on the other side of the spectrum, though, he occasionally breaks out of these really dark moments and has these moments of breakthrough. Chapter 13 and verse 13. Keep silent, he says, and let me speak and let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? And get this line, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I mean, that's an amazing faith. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare to come before him. So Job is all over the place. His emotions are up and down. One moment he's accusing God of being his enemy, and the next moment he's expressing this deep foundational trust in God that he just can't let go of. But even here, you can see his poor theology, though he slay me. He's the one, Job says, though God has slain me, I will still trust him. And as much as I love Job and I love the way he expresses his faith and I love his hope and I love his trust in God, but this is a full-on emotional journey, isn't it? By the, end of, by the end of it, he's hurling accusations at God. And can you see how Job's poor theology Followed through to its logical conclusions. He starts, you know, where he gets to is God did this to me. God killed my family. God destroyed my life. And he's in this really dark place with his head in a real mess. And you'll be thankful that I'm going to spare you reading the whole of the rest of the book. Job and his friends basically go back and forward, back and forward for most of the rest of the book. Trying to, and what makes these passages really tricky is that Job and his friends have both good theology and bad theology. 
So much of what we read in Job is what we read. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That feels like God. And then we read something else. We go, what? What the heck? And um, there's a little quote here um, by a, a theologian. It's an anonymous quote. This book is far too subtle to paint everything in either or terms. It artfully paints a thoroughly ambiguous picture of the cosmos, where those who are basically in the wrong, namely the friends, sometimes speak right, and those whose hearts are basically right, Job, nevertheless speak many untruths. That's why it's a bit hard to read. Remember that spinach? Keep chewing. Okay, and the dialogue goes backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And where it ends up is Job basically shouting out to God, saying, come and explain yourself to me. You have to tell me, come on, you've destroyed my life. I'm blameless. I'm upright. I didn't do this. What's going on? Where are you? Come and speak to me. And finally, finally, in chapter 38, it says, then the Lord spoke. Finally, God shows up and it says he spoke out of the storm. I'll come to that in a minute. He's, this is chapter 38, if you want to find it in your version. He spoke to God out of a storm. Not, he's not a therapist. He's not a crazy uncle. He's a hurricane. And what you're hoping as the reader is you're hoping that God is going to pull back that curtain, aren't you? You're going to go, look, look, Job, I'm going to show you what really happened here. I'm going to give you some answers. That's what you really want after 38 chapters of all this negativity. And what do you get? You don't get any of that. You get questions from God. Who is it Who is this, God says, verse 2, 38 verse 2, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then he, I love this. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you must know. Who stretched the measuring line across the horizon? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Does it feel to you like there's just the hint of sarcasm in God's response? And he's honestly, he's only just getting going. He fires question after question after question back at Job for basically three and a half chapters. Who shut in the sea with its doors? Have you commanded the morning since your, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Where is the east wind that's scattered upon the earth? Can you send forth lightnings? And for two chapters, he's banging on to Job, asking about creation, about the ocean, about the mountain range, about space and the animal kingdom. Okay, he's, he's saying, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Did you give the horse his might? Job's initial response at the beginning of chapter 40 is, I am unworthy. How can I reply? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, and I will say no more. Job's like, I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing to say. And God doesn't let up, he carries on with the questioning. And chapters 40 and 41, he goes on, and he asks specifically, and this is a bit weird, about two monsters. One is called Behemoth and one is called Leviathan. And there's all sorts of debates and controversy about what or exactly they mean and who they are. And some people think they're like animals and young earth creationists think they're like the dinosaurs. But the vast majority of scholars seem to agree that they are ancient, mythological, symbolic creatures that stand for chaos and evil in the world. So in other words, in these four chapters of questions, God is actually helping Job. Although he sounds sarcastic and he sounds a bit confrontational, God is actually being really kind and gracious. He is helping Job to see the bigger picture. Firstly, he's saying, look, the universe is just incredibly complex, Job. 
there is all this stuff going on and you have no idea. And secondly, he says there are forces of evil at, the, at work in our world, you know, chaos, destruction. And you, we don't know them, we don't see them, we don't know much about them, we don't understand them. And John Mark Comer said this about sort of trying to describe what God was doing here. He says, there's a dangerous, wild freedom to the universe that we call home. And a heck of a lot of that is over our pay grade. And that's really the point God is trying to make here. And I'd urge you to read this stuff for yourself this week, because we will dig into a few bits of it next week. I'd urge you to go into this in more detail, to watch the Bible Project's video online. Job replied to the Lord in chapter 42 and verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So Job's response is to say, okay, God, you seem to know what you're doing. Job says, you asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand. In other words, Job is saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. There are things too wonderful for me to know. My translation of this would be Job saying, I am so out of my depth right now. I don't want to fight. I've got nothing to say. I don't want to accuse you. I'm dumbfounded, maybe overwhelmed by the presence of the power of God and his word. Just to sum it up, Job says, you said, listen, and I will speak and I will question you. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Isn't that an amazing line? My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, Job never in this story, never once gets to see behind the curtain that we got to see. He never actually finds out what's going on. He never knows about Satan and about all that deal. He doesn't see any of that. But he sees God. And that is enough. He says, I don't want to debate anymore. I don't want to fight God. You are enough. Therefore, he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And um, rather than despise myself, that doesn't, That doesn't really translate very well. A better translation of that line is, I despise the things I said. Okay, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said those things, and I'm sorry. And Job is completely undone by the power of the word of God. And then you look at what happens in the epilogue. It says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Hang on a minute. So he says to Job's friends, you lot weren't speaking the truth about me, but my servant Job was. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Because we've already said that we don't think that Job was speaking the truth about God in some respects, that theologically he wasn't right. And most scholars think that based on the Hebrew word he used here for right, and based on the story overall, that God is actually not affirming Job's theology wholesale, although parts of it are right, but he is affirming Job's character. He's saying, Job, you are blameless and you are upright. So what 
Job, God must be doing is he's affirming Job and saying, you know that bit when you came and you were honest with me and you wrestled with me in prayer? You know that bit where you came and you were racked by despair and doubt and anger and you had all those questions and you threw those accusations at me? I think God is saying, Job, you did the right thing with those. Do you notice, by the way, that, God, that Job did not take his complaint to his friends and he certainly didn't take it to social media, okay? He didn't start typing it in capital letters on Facebook, okay? He didn't write an angry blog from an ex-Christian. He didn't do any of that. He just prayed and took it to God in prayer. This was a prayer between Job and God and his friends. And it was full on and it was Job wrestling with God and he was despairing and he was doubting, he was angry, he was almost like metaphorically pounding into the chest of God himself. And God's response was he loved it. And even though Job's venting was bordering on blasphemy, if not beyond blasphemy, God took it all on the chin, took it all on board and he basically affirms Job's character. says, you did the right thing with your questions, son. You brought them to your dad. And I'm big enough to take it. You see, God is not nearly as scared of honesty as we are. We're scared of honesty, aren't we? And prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. And God is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Our relationship with God is at a place where we are naked and open and exposed and everything is laid out on the table and that's exactly how he wants to interact with us. And if you keep reading this story, ironically, it ends up on a really positive note. It says after Job, this is 42.10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before and the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life. And after this, he lived 140 years and saw his children, their children, the fourth generation, and Job died an old man full of years. It's a pretty epic story. And as I said, I'm going to dive in a little bit more next week, but I just want to make three comments in conclusion today. And the first one is this. There are just no easy answers. There is mystery at the heart of the universe. You know, there are a number of people who, in my opinion, perhaps arrogantly claim to be able to explain why suffering happens and explain how the universe operates and how evil operates in it. And the truth is, there's more than one theory and anybody who claims to have all the answers is at best ignorant. Okay? There is a curtain behind which most of us never get to see. Job didn't and neither do most of us. And the three most important words to learn as a follower of Jesus, in my opinion, humbly, are these, I don't know. I'm sorry, I can't explain that. I just don't know. Sometimes we're not really prepared to admit that, are we? You know, why is it that a heroin addict will give birth to 10 children and they will all go into the foster care system while somebody in our community who's been following Jesus for years and desperately wants to be a mum is dealing with infertility? How can that be? I don't know. If you're suffering, and some of us are, there are things we don't know and we can't answer. But what we can do is we can cling to what we do know and we can embrace mystery. I have a friend called Bill Dixon in Birmingham. He's in his 80s now and his son died when he was 20. And he said, I've got so many questions for God. When I get there, I'm going to have so, I'm gonna, I've got all these questions listed up for him. But he's chosen to trust and he's chosen to cling on to God and had an amazing, incredible life. 
It's okay to embrace mystery and it's okay to say, I don't know. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there is a place for lament. And we've talked about this other, in, other, in other spaces recently and we're talking about this as a worship team, about how two-thirds of the Psalms that we read in the Bible are basically doubt, confusion, anger, anxiety, depression and despair. And yet sometimes all we do is sing nice things here in church. And it's okay to sing, sometimes we just don't know. I've asked the guys to lead us in a lament in about two or three minutes' time. Okay? There is a place for dispute with God. There is a place to protest. There is a place to say, I don't get this, God. I don't get it. It's not fair. It doesn't feel right. And when we're walking with the Holy Spirit, he will be with us as we do that. We also know there's a place to surrender to God and say, you know, over to you. But there is a place to lament and say, this is really hard. And maybe you're going through that right now. And if you are, keep going. Keep going. Job went through this massive cycle. We'll talk about that next week. The last thing is this, just for this morning, is that there is an invitation to trust. God doesn't answer the question why, but he invites us, as he invited Job, to trust him. He shows us that he is God and that we are not God and that we need to trust his wisdom. Come up, guys. He invites us to trust that no matter... Sorry, he invites us to trust him and trust that he knows what he's doing. And by the way, he doesn't invite us to trust that he's the cause of evil in the world or that everything happens for a reason. What I mean is he's God and he knows what it is to run the universe and he knows what he's doing and he's involved in our lives and we can trust his character. He is a good and loving father. You know, trust gets, trust is pretty easy when you're a little kid, but it gets harder as you get older. And the scary thing about trust is that choosing to trust God doesn't mean choosing to say to believe that nothing bad will happen it doesn't mean believing that when bad things happen it's God's will it's not that choosing to trust God is believing that no matter what happens no matter what's going on God is God that he's a good and loving father that he is with us and we are not alone in our suffering that he knows what suffering is all about so why don't we stand if you want to have three questions to think about you can take those away if you're in life group this week or you just want to do that you just want to be Reflecting on your own, just turn those three points into questions. What are you struggling with? How are we able to be real with God? And how is he inviting us to trust him? I've asked the guys to lead us in a lament, a song of lament. Now, you might not be in a place of lament today, and that's fine. It's called Weep With Me. If you are in this place, then just embrace God in the middle of it. And if you're not, just sing it for the people who you know who are in this place. Guys, why don't you lead us?